Dude, if I think everybody's a Fed, I'll drive myself crazy. So I have to give some people the benefit of the doubt. Honestly, if, if I'm a Fed, I went too deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I could have passed as not a Fed like without doing a lot of the stuff I've done. Yeah. <laughs> Got sucked in. It's like the uh, the people that go and fuck Fidel that are supposed to go kill him, you know? They get in too deep. <laughs> go back to my handler, and they're like, you didn't have to get all those tattoos. <laughs> you can take the flag down off your wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just a placeholder until I can find a bigger one. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right. I think we should get into it. Yeah, let's do it. All right, sick. All right, everyone. So welcome to this week's intervention. I'm Nick here with Steve. And this week, as you've probably heard already, we're joined by Brandon from the Cars and Comrades podcast. And of course, the roundtable of tankies that is the live show that we've been doing together lately. How are you doing today, buddy? Oh, man, I'm, I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Oh, yeah. Why don't you uh, plug your show and tell us about Cars and Comrades a little bit for people that don't know, even though I think there's probably a lot of overlap at this point between the podcasts, but uh, Cars and Comrades is our attempt at creating a, a left space for people who are into like any aspect of car culture. Uh, I, I do a lot of like, I, I work on cars for fun, build, build cars, uh, like old muscle cars, vans, stuff like that. Um, and we have like uh, the different folks on our show just do a ton of different stuff. And it's, it's really cool. And it's such a reactionary space that we just wanted to do something where everybody could feel included. And I don't, we're not, we're not really a very big show. Like we don't get a huge uh, listener base, but we have fun doing it. And that's all that really, really gives a shit about it. Literally if no one listened to the show, I think we would just keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, at this point we're not that big either, you know, but I think it's helping that, you know, we're having all these collabs with like the live show and stuff that we've been doing lately. But I don't know. I like what you said there because our attitude from the beginning was that like, if we can just help influence maybe a handful of people, you know, as we learn ourselves doing all this research and just kind of have an outlet for all this political rage that we've got, it's worth the time, you know? So that's kind of how we look at it as well. And you guys do a hell of a job. I listen to you guys a lot as well. I mean, I don't know much about cars. I can do like basic stuff. So it's interesting to hear you guys really get into it. Um, but it's great that like, you know, it just gives that impression that like, look, these are just, we're all just normal, like working dudes that like have our own hobbies and our own interests and shit like that. And we're, you know, can also be really into fucking communism and want a better world. Yeah. Uh, one of the parts that I enjoy most about doing what we do, and it's exactly why I'm here with y'all today. It, uh, you learn a lot about the labor history. Uh, it's not necessarily through car culture, but like uh, some of the series is that we've done on strikes, um, different efforts inside unions might, this was a personal, uh, one of my, my pet projects that we did an episode on, but we did an episode on the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, which was inside the uh, United Auto Workers Union. It was a subset, and it was a, a, basically a, a Marxist-Leninist branch of workers in Detroit, and it, it did spread to other, like, uh, it wasn't just Dodge, it was Ford and Chevy and all that, too, but uh, it was... What you were seeing was in, in, in the 60s and 70s when everyone was, was being radicalized and really like getting into left politics, it, it spread in places that a lot of people don't realize. And so that was a really fun and exciting episode for me. And since I have like a lot of uh, sort of centrist to like kind of left friends into cars, it was, it was cool being like, hey, you know that really collectible car you've got built by communists? Yeah, definitely a good entry point. 
And, and no joke, I, we did the date codes and everything on one of my friend's muscle cars, and it was it was in a factory that was occupied by Drum during a time when they were. So literally built by communists. Literally built by fucking Marxist, li- built by <laughs> modern liberals. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ma- Marxist Leninist. The MLs. Modern MLs. MLs. Oh, man. But, well, I mean, speaking of labor history broadly, you know, I think that's, to your point, kind of what brings us together today. And we're going to talk about a topic that I think has a lot of relevance. I mean, we're going to be going back in time to look at, you know, this specific industry, but uh, we're going to talk about railroad industry specifically. And I think every we've already doxed ourselves, I think, collectively. So I think most of our listeners know that we live in Pittsburgh. So, you know, we're going to talk about the railroad strike of 1877 and get into really some of the specific details around this strike that occurred in Pittsburgh. Um, Cause it just feels right to do right now for some fucking reason, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The railroad's been kind of on my mind lately and I can't quite figure out why. Yeah. Just feels like the time to do it. So, I mean, honestly, and we had, before we started recording, we were having a conversation about like how history is taught. And I knew like, you know, passingly little, if anything at all, about this particular strike. I think it falls under the category of like the great strikes, you know, that you could go back and read in a history book about. Like I knew none of the details really until I picked up a people's history of the US by Howard Zinn. And I used this pretty extensively for at least my parts of this episode. Um, but Zinn for me just generally, and I can imagine for many others, I mean, he kind of woke me up to the fact that we have a really radical and often, as you were saying, like explicitly socialist history of labor in the US. And obviously that's something that the capitalist class is not going to teach us about. The capitalist state is not going to teach us about, right? So, you know, just with respect for Zinn, I've got a special place for him in my heart. Um, and I think a lot of us on the left should, despite some unfortunate anti-communism on his part. But um, in any case, let's get into it a little bit and maybe rediscover something socialist and militant that we can be proud about in this godforsaken country. All right. So as with everything we talk about, and as aspiring practitioners of the immortal science, we have to understand the historical context in which this strike took place. The United States by 1877 had finally put the quasi-feudal chattel slavery mode of production out of its misery in the South. And that was mainly thanks to full-on rebellion by enslaved Black Americans toward the end of the Civil War, despite, you know, again, what the history books tell you. Depressingly, and this is important for the context of the time, the radical attempts at reconstruction of the South on more equitable social and economic terms, mainly led by newly freed Black men and women alongside poor white farmers in a lot of cases, that had also been crushed. So like these two seismic shifts, first toward progress and then the reaction, like a contradiction, ultimately resulted in the unfettered imposition and expansion of industrial capital all through the country. And this was all facilitated by the state for the libertarians out there, right? And I think, you know, Brandon, you and I were talking about, like, you don't have to look too far past the election of Rutherford B. Hayes for evidence of, like, the state's involvement in crushing the kind of the graspings at socialism that was radical reconstruction and imposing basically Republican dominated industrialization upon the South. Yeah, I will say like th- this one shocked me and I don't know why, but I think I had this idea of, uh, like, I don't want to say a golden era because obviously there was slavery, civil war, but like I, I imagined uh, a time when things were somehow less corrupt. Cause I said, I've only said this off air. Like my focus on American history and reading and research and such is, is generally like the teens forward in America. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm more interested in this century or, you know, in the last hundred years of, of labor. So like when I came across like the Rutherford B. Hayes factoid, I, I had learned around the time that uh, Bush Jr. got elected and didn't win the popular vote, but got the electoral votes and all that. That had happened before in our past. I didn't know that it was under these fucking circumstances, man. Yeah. Hayes lost the popular vote. And I don't know the bit like the specifics, but basically made a backroom deal with three southern states. It was Florida and I believe South Carolina and I, I forget who else, maybe Tennessee, that if they shifted the electoral votes to him, he would withdraw troops and end reconstruction. Mm-hmm. I think uh, they also got like a southern rail route out of it, a, ha- a handful of other like economic moves, but like just uh, like he would he would do that for them if they would just shift and they shifted exactly enough so that he won the electoral college by one vote. So that to me that says everything you need to know about this era like I- industry owned politics. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean and it paved the way for the gilded age, right? In that same vein. But yeah, I mean it's just reconstruction and I need to learn more about it. Um but it was kind of like a pivotal moment and it represented something uh, that kind of could have been in a lot of ways, you know, had people like I mentioned, newly freed, you know, black Americans and, you know, it wasn't just limited to them, but again, like poor white farmers who were not fucking plantation owners, had they been allowed to kind of construct the systems that would help them kind of get out of the ruins of the civil war and had union soldiers had the ability to actually just fucking hang plantation owners. I'll just say that. Or hang more of them. I'm going to quote Nelson from Dixieland of the Proletariat here and say that what America needed in that time was a Maoist-style cultural revolution in the South after the Civil War. Yeah. No, and if that had happened, like, we would be looking at, I believe, a very different country today. But instead, you have these kind of deals being made, and make no mistake, it's the capitalist class in the North working with, like, the richest landowners that remained in the South to impose their will and kind of push capitalism because that's the way it was going. So, at least it never happened again, though, right? <laughs> yeah, the state from that point on yeah. was just a neutral arbiter between between labor and capital. Yep, and they did everything very fairly. So, in any case, the Industrial Revolution. You know, now that the entire continent was open for business, slavery was over, really kicked into gear, and this actually came behind. I mean, America's Industrial Revolution came a bit later relative to Europe's, you know, I think you can look at like Great Britain and France as starting, you know, in the late 1700s and really taking, taking flight through the early 1800s. And this paved the way for the entire continent, you know, whereas it had kind of kicked off more heavily in the north. Now it was the United States, as we understand it today, entering this era. It makes sense, though. There was there was so much textile work going on in England in this era. And America, for some reason, was able to produce like cotton really cheaply in the early to mid part of that century. I, I, I forget. I think there was a reason why it was so cheap. But uh, yeah, hmm. well, we'll have, to, we'll have to come back to that. Just let me know hmm. if you remember. <laughs> but it, it made it so that like industrializing probably didn't seem as big of a priority because they were still making big money without having to like do the investment in like factories and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And that's why there was this kind of contradiction between the North and the South. Like this, despite what they tell you again, it wasn't about like the morals and ethics of slavery. It was about no, fucking states rights, economics. Yeah. 
<laughs> States rights to what, motherfucker? <laughs> oh my god. Oh god. Dude, I I grew up in the South and I, I learned the state rights. I was in my twenties and still arguing about that shit. Like I regret it. But dude, they embed that shit into you, especially growing up in the South. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you can't teach that we were racist and wrong, right? I mean, you have to legally. You cannot. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But anyway, I I think that is all really important context to this, and I know we're seeming to stray a bit far from the railroad discussion, but I promise it's all going to make sense when we get there. Because, you know, with the Industrial Revolution really taking off came all of the technological advancements like we learned about in elementary school, right? So the explosion of steam power and locomotives on rivers and railways, iron and steel works raised at scales not seen on the continent before, and mechanization coming to dominate agriculture, right? And, you know, I just want to make this point because technology is all well and good on its own and will be absolutely fantastic to have under a new mode of production. But we're talking about capitalism. So we, of course, have to contend with the human suffering that coincided with these technological developments, right? And these developments could be put in service of making society richer on more egalitarian terms, but not under this mode of production, right? I only mention this because I think the conversation comes up a lot, especially nowadays about like, yeah, I don't know, trying to label technology as inherently evil. I mean, I think there is inherently useless technology, but I don't think it's inherently evil because at the end of the day, people are choosing how to apply technology. And it's put and if it's put in the service of making profits, of course it's gonna fucking come across as evil, but it's not necessarily so if it could be applied in different directions, you know? I don't know if I agree with you, but it's it's not really a point worth debating in the moment. <laughs> Fair enough. That's just how I see it. But anyway, going back to this, as Every good Marxist knows industrialization does require labor. And in capitalism, that labor is exploited to the maximum extent possible to generate profits for the parasite class. And that's where the pro proletariat comes in. So the urban working class had obviously already existed in the large metropolitan and industrial areas of the North, like Boston, New York, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. But after the Civil War and Reconstruction, new mechanisms were at play. For one, you've got new industrial centers slowly beginning to grow in the South, right? For another, you had a mass migration northward by the black population from the South, and that would soon increase the ranks of the urban proletariat in the North. And this was a process that was really driven by many families fleeing the coercive sharecropping system, which rose up out of the foundations of slave society in the South. And again, I'll say we should have hung more fucking plantation owners to prevent shit like that from happening. And then finally, with all this, you have like, the inexorable and bloody march westward, reaching its apotheosis as federal forces continued the centuries-long genocide of indigenous people, basically with the goal of subjugating the entire continent to capital, manifest destiny and all that, right? Honestly, we were focused so much on the industrial parts, I forgot about the westward expansion. Well, that's all tied into it too, right? And think about the railroads. Uh, yeah. No, 100%. I just like wasn't thinking about the full scope of, of, of everything that was going on in the context of our little railroad strike we're, we're doing. but. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason the railroad strike happened, and it had everything to do with that. Yeah, and Zinn makes the point in the book, and I think I'll read the quote that includes this, but I'll mention it here anyway, just because it comes up. But there weren't as many, once the strikes actually kicked off, there weren't as many federal troops at the government's disposal to kind of put down the strikes and the, and the riots and things, because a lot of them were out west fighting the quote-unquote Indian Wars. One thing you can say in opposition to that too though is like while a lot of the actual uh troops were out west by this by the era that we're talking about everyone had been a veteran or a troop because this is fresh out of the civil war 
So yeah. everybody had some kind of training, knew how to use a firearm. Yep. Now the now the question is, are you going to be a uh, class trader or not? Well, once we get to the Pittsburgh portion of this, it's going to get really fucking interesting. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, anyway, but speaking of that, so hopefully that kind of sets the stage a bit just in terms of the U.S. economic and societal development. Um, and we can actually start getting closer to 1877. And I'm sure you guys will be surprised to hear this, but in 1877, the U.S. was actually in the midst of yet another depression. And it's just always amazing to me that the greatest system ever created in the world fails most people every four to seven years, doesn't it? And Brandon, as we kind of talked about, the Depression had actually really set in in 1873, and that did coincide with the beginning of the end of radical reconstruction in the South. This, this Depression was so bad that until our Great Depression that we know of, this was referred to as the Great Depression. Yeah. I think 25% of working people were out of a job at one point during this Depression. That sounds about like what I read, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so that just gives a sense. I mean, I don't, I don't remember exactly what, like, the COVID numbers were in terms of how many people were out of work at the beginning of COVID, but I don't think it, I don't think it was that. It wasn't wasn't a quarter, it wasn't a quarter of the fucking working population. That's for sure. So shit shit was bad. It was real bad. Why why was it so bad, Nick? What, what, what caused the fucking depression that made it so bad? We're going to get to that. And it's also (laughs) got a catchy name called the panic of 1873, right? Is that like panic at the disco? Is that a band? Is that a really shitty band? Not quite as fun. (laughs) I mean, Still shitty, but not quite as fun, I guess. (laughs) You know, I think it's important to note that this panic and the depression that followed wasn't just confined to the U.S. It was felt across Europe as well. And I think it was just another signal of capitalism's tendency towards global interconnectivity and, frankly, imperialism, right? Because we know imperialism isn't just like fighting wars and big country fight small country and dominate it. It's about, you know, the motion of finance capital through the world, right? And in any case, um, as a side note, just to add a little bit of context to that, um, the Paris Commune had been formed and then drowned in blood by the bourgeoisie and aristocrats of Europe only a few years prior to the Great Panic, and that was in 1871. So this is, again, to say that capitalism was generating contradictions and radicalizing workers all over the industrializing world in this epoch. And though it ended in disaster, the Paris Commune was a pivotal moment in world history. And as Marx and Engels entered the last stretch of their lives, the socialist movement in Europe grew in strength in spite of vicious reaction. And just, you know, just to throw out a, a little breadcrumb out there um, of note, a young Russian boy had been born the year before the formation of the commune, and his name was Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. So again, just to kind of paint the picture that, you know, there's not this, this event in the U.S. isn't happening just in isolation because it is capitalism is beginning to be at this point a very global system. And the working people everywhere are feeling the effects of its downturns, right? But we can get back to the states now. So the causes of the panic and the resultant depression are many, um, but crucially and extremely pertinent to the story today was the investment boom in the railroad industry. So the speculative frenzy in laying 35,000 miles of new track across the country from 1866 to 1873 was led from a financial perspective by an investment firm called J. Cook & Company. The main issue in all this is that because capitalist markets are anarchic, production is uncoordinated, and they are detrimentally competitive, all of this investment and planning to drive the economic growth of the nation was not planned in the same way. 
It was sustained by the state, but private finance and industry kind of led the charge, meaning that railroads were being built outside the scope of a planned national development, which is insane to me because if you're trying to grow the economy of a nation and railroads are going to essentially be the arteries of commerce, it would make sense that you would want to do this in some kind of sane way instead of just letting bankers functionally place bets on the winners, right? And where a new, um, where a new, uh, industrial center might spring up you know but that's how capitalism goes most efficient system ever yeah i mean i, I don't even have much much to add to that like it, it's it's wild that they like approach this the way that they did uh but then at the same time it's it's not it it's literally the 1870s version of pretty much everything that we're going through right now uh, i mean and we see it today with like all the money that i mean and i think it's even more absurd today because you just look at all of the bullshit that gets made. And like, we're talking about in like the digital space. I mean, at least railroads are fucking useful in some way, right? Like they were building useless and inefficient railroads in a lot of cases, but at least that's something like tangible and material. Um, now we're in, I mean, even to, do, to say we've like long outlived capitalism's usefulness. To, to do point. a direct comparison, uh, the reason for Tesla's overvaluation, because Tesla right now, in spite of the fact they make like 20,000 cars a year, which is a, a joking understatement, but whatever. They, they make a fraction of the cars that the big three do, and their valuation is higher than the next three to five uh, automotive companies combined. Mm -hmm. And it, it's simply because enough people invested and think that like eventually Tesla is going to be so big that their stocks are going to make them rich. And it's never going to happen. But they're going to keep throwing those dice until they're broke or they're rich. So it's it's no different now over 150 years later. Yep. And it looks like they might go broke. I think Elon's lost like 50% of his net worth in the past couple of months here, hasn't he? Because Tesla <laughs> stock is tanking. Until he's lost at least 50% of his blood, I won't be happy. <laughs> that would be ideal. <laughs> that would be ideal. He's going to be the next vice president. Apparently him and Trump are going to run together. Oh, I thought you were going to say him and Kanye, maybe. And that would have been even more absurd. <laughs> They're, they're gonna run us a throuple apartheid clyde and fucking <laughs> apartheid clyde and nazi kanye yeah. <laughs> amazing i mean honestly that's kind of what it, it, it's at some point in this country's future if things don't change it eh, wouldn't be that surprising to me but um i don't know so but just back to kind of the situation at this time with the railroads i pulled this quote from this researcher uh sergio avia roque from St. Mary's University, because it just adds a little bit of color to what I already said, and I kind of liked how it, you know, just frames it. So he says, quote, the railroad building business was very risky. Investors were essentially pouring their money into building industrial tracks leading to nowhere in hopes that the location would become prime locations for commerce. The leading firm, Jay Cook and Company, decided to fold. A significant number of companies followed, approximately 89 out of the existing 364 railroad companies. The majority of these companies declared bankruptcy within the first two years after Jay Cook and Company declared bankruptcy, meaning that after having invested most of their monies into the railroad building business, most of these companies would rather take the loss than further invest any more money. This in turn caused more problems for the average citizen because of the economic slump that would ensue. So as a very slight aside, and I didn't research this beforehand, it's just something I actually know about. A lot of these companies were also using different railroad gauges like uh literally the width between tracks so, so they were like they were doing all of this development and a lot of these companies were not even building compatible trains 
But you know what? Just because you mentioned Tesla, it reminds me of something else. It's like you've got, you're trying to build towards like all of this like electrical car charging infrastructure, right? And all these companies have their own fucking plugs. Like if you have like a uh, GM electric vehicle, you can't go to a Tesla charging station because the plug is not compatible with it, which is just fucking insanity. No, it's it's fucking capitalism. It's capitalism. Yeah. And capitalism is insanity. I mean, honestly, like there's no other way to describe it at this point. But yeah, but it's it's crazy because you have to think about it like and as you'll as we'll kind of see, like different railroad companies operated in different regions. So you invariably actually have to work, you know, with different rail lines as you move goods from one place to the other. Like if you're going from New York to California at this point, you're going to run into, you know, tracks that are owned by other railroad companies more often than not, you know? And they would often be a different gauge. It was actually a a phenomenon globally because you couldn't even be like a consistent manufacturer of any sort of train car and ship them internationally because other countries also use different gauges. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, global communism, that's what we need. But anyway, so just to go back to Jay Cook, so the demise of Jay Cook and other institutions gave rise to the literal panic that leads people to pulling money out of banks, right? Like like we saw in the Great Depression. So from the perspective of the railroad magnates, the tap was being cut off, but the shareholders that are invested in this still expect their dividends. So this meant profits were about to be fucked with. And where do capitalists look when they need to maintain or increase profits? The labor. government. <laughs> that <laughs> or squeezing labor, right? Yeah. And, you know, squeezing it for everything it offers by increasing the rate of exploitation, forcing workers to generate even more surplus value. Read Marx, right? So, you know, following in this line of thought, railroad after railroad began enacting wage cuts. As hours remained long, working conditions grew even more dangerous, and the economic situation across the country deteriorated. As I mentioned earlier, up to 25% of the working class was out of a job during this depression. So shit's getting bad, right? Like, Wage cuts are always an abomination, but in a time when like children are dying of starvation and sickness because economic situation is so bad in cities like New York, it's easy to see like why workers are starting to get really pissed off and rage is going to hit a boiling point soon, right? So we're going to get into that point. And after multiple wage cuts, often on the order of 10% a clip, pot begins to boil over. And as Mark Kruger, the author of the St. Louis Commune of 1877 wrote, The pay cuts between 1873 and 1880 were so drastic that, quote, wages in the industry as a whole were reduced by almost half. So it really shouldn't come as a surprise that when in July of 1877, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad enacted a third pay cut, two brakemen working in Martinsburg, West Virginia, decided enough was finally enough and announced no more trains would be leaving Martinsburg until the wage cut was canceled. And these workers were soon joined by other rail workers and sympathetic crowds, and a full-on strike was on in Martinsburg. And I'm just going to read a passage from Howard Zinn regarding the response uh, by Capitol and the federal government following the inability of the state militia to put down the movement at the order of the governor. So this is from Zinn. Quote, 600 freight trains now jam the yards at Martinsburg. The West Virginia governor applied to newly elected President Rutherford Hayes for federal troops, saying the state militia was insufficient. In fact, the militia was not totally reliable, being composed of many railway workers themselves. Much of the U.S. Army was tied up in Indian battles in the West. Congress had not appropriated money for the Army yet, but J.P. Morgan, August Belmont, and other bankers now offered to lend money to pay Army officers, but no enlisted men. 
Federal troops arrived in Martinsburg, and the freight cars began to move. In Baltimore, a crowd of thousands of sympathetic to the ra- thousands sympathetic to the railway strikers surrounded the armory of the National Guard, which had been called out by the governor at the request of the B&O Railroad. The crowd hurled rocks, and the soldiers came out firing. The streets now became the scene of a moving, bloody battle. When the evening was over, ten men or boys were dead, more badly wounded, one soldier wounded. Half of the 120 troops quit, and the rest went on to the train depot where a crowd of 200 smashed the engine of a passenger train, tore up tracks, and engaged the militia again in a running battle, end quote. And this kind of sets off, you know, more activity across the country. So people hearing about the rebellion in Martinsburg, railroad workers across the country kind of spontaneously start to rise up, and soon enough, commerce on the railways was coming to a halt. And it's important to remember, and again, we were talking about this earlier too, that at this point in time, like labor unions in the U.S. were very nascent, and they didn't have nearly like the level of national organization that we see even today, let alone the heights of organization they would reach in like the coming years. Like the AFL wasn't formed yet; um, they wouldn't form until 1886, months after the Haymarket Affair. But this uprising was a clear sign that workers were fed up with their treatment under the capitalists, and labor organization and a socialist movement was, in many ways, kind of inevitable, right? But despite like this lack of national organization from Chicago to Cleveland to New York and even Scranton, PA, the hometown of our most pro-labor president in history, the workers oh, started to rise right up. <laughs> I know, right? Come on, Jack. He's the most, he, I mean, he's even better than FDR, isn't he? Uh, everybody knows that we're here because of the fucking rail strike. <laughs> and anyone who has ever listened to the live episodes know that I want to do things to Joe Biden that I can't legally record. <laughs> That I'll need to be because about. they're so sensual. That's right. <laughs> he just I wants are. to sniff that beard. <laughs> I would try. Um, <laughs> I would just move to the side, and he would just start sniffing air, not realizing it. That's yeah. right. Fucking hate that man. Yeah, he fucking sucks. Fuck him. But anyway, um, in St. Louis, the movement was especially radical. Um, the Working Men's Party, who I believe, Bryn, you're going to talk about a little bit later when we turn to Pittsburgh. But they essentially kind of took charge, organized rallies, speeches, and strike support. And it was fairly nonviolent. Like, they had a lot of political power in St. Louis, um, at least nonviolent relative to what was going on in the rest of the country. But, you know, the Working Men's Party really took charge of the situation. I mean, at these speeches, there were calls being made for nationalization of industry to the cheers of throngs of working people. Um, And, you know, Zinn points this out, but the working people of St. Louis displayed Class, class solidarity across racial lines that's not seen often enough in this racist country because apparently he gives this anecdote about a black organizer basically asking crowds if they would stand with the predominantly black steamboat and levee workers regardless of color and the crowd responded in the affirmative right so i mean it and that this that brings up an important point here because we're talking about workers outside of the railroad like a general strike was on in st louis and that all came as a result of the working men's party organizing this and being in touch with you know working people with just the masses in the city right that was a really mixed bag city to city like i didn't do a ton of reading on on different spots outside of pittsburgh but one thing i did come across was in in pennsylvania alone our strike was considered pretty integrated across both racial and like gender lines like uh, women were involved and playing an active part uh i i didn't find a lot of explicit like numbers or anything but Supposedly, it was a racially diverse crowd, roughly in line with like 
what the numbers looked like in Pittsburgh. Cause I don't, I don't really know how, uh, like what the black community was like here at that time, but like other strikes got squashed very quickly in Pennsylvania because they kind of broke their own strike, refusing to organize with black people. Yep. Was that Redding that was that had that problem? Like, if I, I remember don't, correctly? I don't think so. I think Redding, Redding went for a while after Pittsburgh. I, th- I okay. think it was one of the more violent places, if I remember correctly. Okay. There was there was a lot of places in Pennsylvania that were striking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think Redding, Philly, Erie, Pittsburgh. Uh, there was at that. least three cities that don't exist anymore. Because, like, uh, Allegheny City was considered its own city at that time, which local to Pittsburgh, that's the north side. Yeah, they have their own, like, train lines and stuff, too. Right. That's a good point. But, yeah, so, I mean, but St. Louis does provide, like, a pretty... I don't know. It's just a pretty interesting example of what could have been if you saw that type of organization, I think, uh, across the board and then had managed to kind of link these things up. You know, like if the Working Men's Party had been present in that same kind of in that same kind of way across the board and actually had like national lines of communication, like things could look really different. There's this historian, David Burbank, that uh, Zen calls out in his book. And he's this author of this book, it's called The Reign of the Rabble. So it kind of gives you a sense of like what this guy's perspective is on this. I don't think he's necessarily a fan of labor uprisings and striking workers. But, you know, even he was kind of compelled to write this. So, quote, only around St. Louis did the original strike on the railroads expand into such a systematically organized and complete shutdown of all industry that the term general strike is fully justified. And only there did the socialists assume undisputed leadership. No American city has come so close to being ruled by a worker's Soviet, as we would call it now, as St. Louis, Missouri in the year 1877. See, I, I, would, I wouldn't completely disagree with what you're saying, but like to add a layer to it, uh, while it wasn't like a nationwide general strike, oh, there was, and you wouldn't really call it organized, this sort of strike couldn't have happened in a lot of other industries. Railroad workers were able to spread information so quickly because that was their job every day. They were traveling hundreds of miles. So information moved quickly. Yeah. And so relative to the rest of the population that could maybe write a letter and hope that it got there within the next few weeks, these folks were moving information pretty fast. So, yeah, I mean, like, uh, shy of a telegraph, this was about as fast as you were going to spread information. And God knows they weren't, like, able to organize, organize via telegraph. So this was... I, I get what you're saying. It, it could have been better, but honestly, this was pretty fucking good with what they were working with. Yeah, and no, like my point is not to be like critical of these people, them. yeah, but like just kind of pointing out like it, what what would have made it better. And if we looked at it today, what would be required to actually link these things up? Because communication is great, but you have to be on the same page too. You know? Oh, I mean, I will get there, but I'll show you, uh, like. Uh, there is instances of high organization and no organization in Pittsburgh. Right. Like both, both things were present in different areas around the city. And it is a, a massive difference in what the two strikes looked like, or at least like the two sides of the river. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think honestly, man, I think it's as good a time as any to turn that over to you. Um, I just want to make the comment that, you know, again, trying to keep that kind of international lens on all this. Um, but, Karl Marx was kind of watching all this happen um, from England, and he made the comment that this, quote, first uprising against the oligarchy of capital, which had developed since the Civil War, 
could very well be the point of origin for the creation of a serious workers party in the u.s so i mean this was like fucking this was real deal legit shit st louis was a big one but grant i want to turn over to you to talk about what was going on in pittsburgh well so in the in the same way that st louis was probably the single most organized strike in the entire country of this railroad strike pittsburgh was the most violent yeah (laughs) which uh I don't know, like, I'll take a certain honor to that, but, like, I prefer violence when it's to an end, and as we'll get to, this this sort of, it happened just because it happened. So, like, first off, the strike in Pittsburgh actually started for slightly different reasons than it did in the rest of the country. I think at this point where, like, it would be three or four days past the Martinsville strike, and uh, so while everyone else was going on strike because of pay cuts, in Pittsburgh, rail workers, while not exactly thrilled about the pay cuts, were faced with an additional problem called double headers. A double header, and the re- this is one of the reasons that this was more focused on Pittsburgh than anywhere else, is double headers weren't really common anywhere else besides Pittsburgh. And that was simply when you doubled the length of a train and added an extra locomotive to the front. So it's almost just like a double train. The problem is that they weren't safe. Uh, they were prone to accidents or derailments. And brakemen, which already had like a notoriously dangerous job working in the railroad, uh, it, it upped the like unsafety factor for them by a, a notable margin. Other things that doubleheaders did uh, was reduce the crew needed to run a train by about half. Because even though you had two locomotives and still needed everyone involved to run one locomotive per, you only ran one caboose, which is actually where a lot of workers were. I, I don't really understand the full function of the caboose, but I know that you didn't quite cut the staff required in half, but almost in half to transport the same amount of rail cars. So you're getting you're getting basically the same output while paying less. So I mean, like there are different mechanisms, but at the end of the day, this is just another way to go after more profit, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and I'll touch on it later, but I mean, it's really similar to what's going on in, in England now, right, with this ongoing rail strike. A lot of that is due to, there's a lot of factors, but one of them is after COVID, the government gave Network Rail, which is kind of encompasses all the different privatized rail companies in England. It gave them a lot of money to keep them going during COVID, but then there were caveats to that, and one of them was they had to modernize everything. And a lot, one of the major modernizing steps is to, to develop these trains they'd only need one operator on. So there would just be one member of staff. So again, reducing the the labor that goes into the trains. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's still happening today. It's very similar. Dude, every, every technological development I've heard of for the last 10 years, if you just wait long enough, it, you have learned how it's eventually just a mechanism to cut labor. Yeah, and and the the one train the the one operator trains it's it's the first step to fully automated so that you know network rail are trying to basically get rid of any any operators on trains. Well, and I mean that was kind of like my point earlier is that like if we have a society where people get taken care of regardless, like it, and we don't need a you know a live person operating the train, but that person that loses their job as a result of technology isn't going to fucking die on the street because they don't have a job anymore because in capitalism you either work or die. That is how it works. But if you if you put that technology in a different context where that person is still taken care of and like is able to live like a decent life and actually benefit from having some kind of shitty job automated, that's the only reason I say that I don't think technology is necessarily bad. But like again, this is why people get scared of technology. And 
you know, you hear about it in some circles that you would consider maybe, maybe reactionary, but you know what? People get fucking scared of losing their job just as what it is, you know? And it, it, it makes sense in the system where they're going to be left behind if they do. It, it, we're not going to get into the Luddites because that's a whole conversation, but very interesting story with those guys because that was their concern. It wasn't, they weren't just anti-technology. They were anti-everyone losing their work and losing their identity, yeah. visualism, et cetera. But yeah, so the thing about double-heading trains was it actually wasn't an uncommon phenomenon in Pittsburgh. It was just certain circumstances. So they're upping the utilization of double-headers and they're also doubling the length. Like m the longest trains, I think, that ran double headers for, I think, 48, 50-ish miles. And they doubled it. It was, I, th I think it was like a 120-mile route that they upped it to. Oh, man. So when you combine both things, a double header cuts the amount of crew almost in half. And then when you double the route, that cuts it in half again, because you're, instead of running two trains, you're only running one. And additionally, you're doubling everyone's functional workday for yep. the same pay. Uh, so that announcement was made and it was everybody was told that it was going to be going into place on July 19th, which coincidentally is the first day of the Pittsburgh strike. Yeah. So uh, the first day of the new doubleheader policy, the first three men that are ordered to take the doubleheader train just refuse. Oh, yeah. They, like it wasn't a strike. It was just we're not going to do it. I mean, it might as well have been a strike because that was the spirit of it. It's. When it's unsafe, hurts you, like hurts your wages, doubles your workday, hurts your friends, hurts your family. Like, why the fuck would you take that? So, they, yeah, they refused. And management tried to call another crew, and they refused. And I believe they called a third crew, and they refused. Basically, nobody was going to touch these doubleheader trains. Um, so the acting super, in, uh, the, the actual train superintendent was out of town when this happened. So the acting superintendent, uh, a man named David Watt, he called the city to demand that the police be sent to the train station to get with, like get workers in order. Like, Fucking you know, scab. You, he's a boss. Yeah, so he's a boss. He, he's just a piece of shit. But, and, and like, you know, th but this is where you see that the police, like the origins of the police are class traders. Like, he called the city to send them in to squash the strike. And, and, and actually, you'll see some of the more heartwarming stories of, of police you'll ever see in this story. It's kind of interesting. But, uh, Pittsburgh had laid off like most of their police force during the economic crash. And so as of like 1873, they basically had no spare officers. The railroad agreed that they like, if they could rally up a few officers, the, the, like they would pay for it out of pocket. So the city found, uh, I believe about 10 police officers that had been out of work and were willing to be paid by the railroad to go and, you know, deal with these striking workers. Um, and so the police showed up and anybody want to venture a guess as to what happens when a bunch of people from Pittsburgh show up and find that a bunch of other people from Pittsburgh are in distress and start fighting. Uh, they sided with them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it just, it just failed miserably. Uh, so Watt ended up going to, uh, the railroad station himself. He kept insisting that somebody go there to operate the switches and, the, and they wouldn't do it. He showed up himself, demanded that someone do it. But at this point, there are enough people who have refused that, like, what we have right now is the beginnings of a picket line. Anybody who goes and tries to operate the train is basically crossing a picket line, and they will not do it. If not because of solidarity, out of fear, which 
is the correct reason. Like, in that order, those are the correct reasons to not cross a picket line. Yeah. If, if you think that's a good idea and you're not afraid to, we're not doing a good job as workers. I was going to say, the fear is predicated upon solidarity because it implies that there's a bunch of people fucking making you scared to cross that picket line, right? If you're not going to stand on the side of them. Uh, so eventually, uh, Watt tried to just... I, I don't know what, what mechanisms they were using because you... you, you see them say pulling switches and stuff like that a lot so apparently watt goes in and tries to do that himself and no one got too specific but supposedly he was attacked for trying to do so i don't know if that means he was pushed away and he got all rich guy like oh you touched me or if somebody just laid him right the fuck out and i hope it's the latter but who knows so everyone was fired you don't get to hit the boss and refuse to work and keep your job and so the day that started out was three or four people refusing to take a train that they didn't think was ethical. Eventually, that day ended with 1,400 people on strike. Damn. And all out of solidarity with their fellow workers. And I, I will say, like, um, I, couldn't, I didn't find any evidence of the working man's party uh, being very active here. Okay. We, we did have a branch of what was called the Trainsmen's Union. And I couldn't find a lot of information about that. I mostly found it coming up reading about different cities. Everyone seemed to have some various branches of the Trainsmen's Union. I think it eventually turned into one of the other rail unions. Okay. But up until like pretty much the like that that played a role in the north side in Allegheny City, but for the most part, it probably didn't do anything more than build solidarity between the workers for the time being. It wasn't like a national, like national level org right it wasn't like organized nationally like maybe loosely but not in i don't even think loosely okay i mean i think that this is one of those things that was probably very akin to uh like what i was saying earlier where it wasn't it probably wasn't a national organization but word probably spread just because the trains are traveling all over and, and word spreads sure. but like they, they did have one interesting role and i'll get to that in here in a little bit so, so that's, that's pretty much the end of that day. Like, our, our strike was only a, a little over a week. But the next day, the strike continues to grow. Trains come to town, and the crews just unload and join the strikers. The Pittsburgh sheriff and the general of the local militia, and bear in mind, like, at, at this time, militia was, was basically National Guard, except localized. It wasn't, you know, militia like the psychopaths that we think of now. Both showed up to try to break up the crowds. And this is this is good. The the sheriff had people heckling him, yelling things like "Bring us a loaf of bread," and "You're creating a riot," which it just tells me that as as long as there have been cops, they have found ways to cause problems and then blame them on everyone else. The guy was probably like fucking like causing all sorts of problems and and just blaming the crowd, blaming the strikers. The general, uh, he seems to. Have just been mocked and made fun of like i, I couldn't I, I didn't find specific quotes but they just openly made fun of him uh so he did the only logical thing that you can do when you're confronted with a group of people with very reasonable demands he called the local militia on them call people to come and kill them yeah i'm not getting my way yeah you're like it's basically through a tantrum right and we're, we're gonna notice a trend here yeah so they called in the local militia and it, it took them a little while to come in because they had to come in from all the surrounding areas. And the whole time, they just have more strikers coming in, like more after more after more. Oh, yeah. And another interesting thing, and this I only found this from one historian, and it was actually like uh, sort of a testimony to his familiarity with our city and not just like 
the era. One of the reasons that Saturday was such like a fucked time uh, for this to be going down was they were near areas where there was a lot of ironwork going on because ironwork was smaller scale at this time. Mm-hmm. And it was common practice for those shops to work a half day on Saturday. So they might get out at like one or two in the afternoon. Okay. And s- since they're working near those locations, they just had an influx of workers who were getting off of work and just intentionally or otherwise just walked right into the middle of the strike. So they joined up with them. Like a lot of these like iron workers coming off just like said, Hey, we'll stick around and support y'all. Yeah. I mean, by many accounts before the violence broke out, uh, this was a huge party. This was everybody refusing to go to work, telling the bosses to go fuck themselves, hanging out with their friends, hanging out with their family. Like, I can't remember the numbers, but by the end, it was a, a, a small-ish fraction of the total amount of people in the riots that were actual, like, railroad workers. But a lot of the other people that were there were in support industries, like any type of, like, ironworking, forging, like, so on and so forth. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, and that's just, like, something that you just, I don't know, you just want to see that today. Like, there's still obviously a lot. There's there's still a lot that needs to happen in terms of like reviving the labor movement in the U.S. But you know, I see I, I go down to the, some of these like Starbucks pickets that are going on, and you know, I'm waiting for the day where I see a lot more workers in mass coming to support these kind of things. You know, you just I don't see that. <laughs> I guess I just don't see the solidarity yet. You know, at least here, <laughs> it it's, doesn't happen overnight. Mm. No, it doesn't. It sucks, but I, hopefully we get there. Hmm. I think you're starting to see it more in England. I mean, I don't know how much you guys have followed, like what happened last year, but there were, you know, I, I mentioned the rail strikes and I'll talk more about that later. But, um, you know, even you had doctors going on strike last year, you had lawyers going on strike last year. And, you know, everybody thinks like a lawyer, you know, why would they strike? They, they earn tons of money. But, you know, it was mostly like whatever the equivalent of like a public defender would be. And if you... You know, England, when I went to university there, it was very affordable, whereas now it's adopted more of an American model. So you you go into debt. And a lot of these lawyers, especially if you're working in London, you know, you're earning less than like 30,000 pounds, which in London is that, you know, those those are like poverty wages. So you're in debt from university and then you're not able to earn enough to live. And but you've seen, you know, when I was in Sunderland recently, where which is where my family's from you know, they're, they're all working class. And there was a lot of solidarity, even with lawyers and doctors and everybody, because there's a realization that despite they have, despite the fact these are, you know, they have professional occupations, they're, they're still, you know, part of the working class. And, the, and so I think in England, you're starting to see a lot more support for a lot of these labor movements that are, and, and I think in England last year was like a record number of strikes um you know probably since the 80s so it's it's definitely growing there's growing some strength in england i didn't know about all of that but i knew about some of the strikes in england and some of the quotes that i had seen were heartwarming just like oh what do you like i I saw it from some uh conservative media where they were trying to like lead the question and say like oh well you know what are you going to do when you're late to work and do have to do this and have to do that because the trains aren't running and it was just people being like i'm going to continue supporting the strike (laughs) Yeah, because they they deserve better than what they're getting, right? Okay, so uh, this being Saturday, you you've just throughout the day and throughout the last two days, you've had people coming in from all over and joining in the strike. And this evening is when the Pittsburgh militia is formed and arrives to deal with the crowd. 
And uh, does anybody want to guess how this goes? Yeah, they 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 joined the the rioters and protesters. Uh, good of, cops? <laughs> no way. Well, because as you said, like they show up, they're they're interacting with with strikers, and it just it was a bunch of people that knew each other, and they were just hanging out. There were accounts of militiamen showing up that worked on the railroad. <laughs> that like. This is round two of the railroad trying to send in somebody to crush the strike and just have them join in. It's, uh, it's so beautiful. It's so great. And so uh, later in that day, uh, the vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad shows up. Uh, I believe that was Robert Pitcairn. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, so he was presented with the demands of the workers. Uh, like they actually they had a list of demands. They got them to him. It was very simple. No double headers. Pay to be restored to the rates from two months prior, rehiring of all laid off workers, and no more pay tiers. Because, you know, like the lowest level worker might be making a dollar while the highest level worker might be making a dollar fifty or a dollar seventy five a day. And they, uh, that to me is one of the most respectable ones. They said flat out, no more, no matter what job you're doing, equal pay. Yep. Karen's response to them was, uh, or to whoever handed him the message was, have no further talk with them. They've asked for things we cannot grant them at all. Now, like some of these wouldn't even be difficult to grant. No but shit. they just, just out of hand. No, fuck off. Like that double headers, like what you said. I mean, just with the situation that it creates, just in terms of like the mass exploitation, like they did not have to do that. I mean, they don't, ha- I mean, they're trying to increase profits in all this, right? And like then when you talk about pay, it's like you're talking about restoring to rates two months prior. I mean, th- those were probably two months prior was probably already cut from, you know, what they were, at least relative to the economic conditions from before, like the, the panic set in and the depression actually started. So, I mean, they're still functionally taking a pay cut. And as the living, you know, as, as the uh, the cost of living is probably just increasing around them as well, you know, so it's like and this happens all the time. It's like work. It's like what's going on right now? Asking for fucking just time off. So you can, you know, go be with your family or go get taken care of when you're sick. Like they're not asking for very fucking much. Yeah, no, exactly. I I know they went through three rounds of pay cuts and I doubt that they were in a period of two months. So probably what they were asking for wasn't even their full payback. Exactly. It it was just stop, stop cutting us down to the fucking bone. Yeah. And like, I don't think we actually got into this with the economic crash, but one of the reasons that the railroads remain so fucked consistently was at no point would they ever reduce dividends to stockholders yeah i mentioned it in passing but yeah like they still have to pay but they still have to pay that out right and the way that cycle works is like money gets put in they need to constantly grow and it has to be like the rate of profit right like you're always growing the rate of profit so it compounds upon itself like you're starting from this base that just kind of multiplies in like almost like an exponential way in terms of how businesses are evaluated from like a growth perspective. And it's just unfucking tenable. But yeah, like you still have to pay these parasites that sit on their ass while the working man can barely pay for his food and his house. Exactly the point I was going to make. Yeah. So after, uh, uh, by the end of the, that day, there was supposedly not a single cop or militia man that had not joined in. Now, I don't know if there had been stragglers before, but, but, but by this point, there's not a single person trying to put down the strike. Uh, it's just folks hanging out. They understand the plight of the workers. And, you know, ev- everyone that like, was sent in to squash this, every one of them had friends or family that were railroad r- workers. Uh, one militia man was quoted as saying, 
we may be militiamen, but we are workmen first. Yeah. And like, I, I perfect. Most articulate man of 1877. You know, I wonder <laughs> if this is in some ways why you don't see, I mean, I'm sure it's developed a lot, but like why you don't see something like a, you know, a town militia being kind of formed up out of people, right? Because like you could have those connections. Whereas if you've got like a professionalized police force, meant and bred to essentially just function as a protectionary mechanism for private property and that's what these fucking again class traders are paid to do you can't have that right because these people are isolated from that and this is their sole function within society well their solution in uh this strike was you know slightly different but effectively the, the same in spirit which is after they realized that all of the police and all of the militia had joined the workers they contacted I don't know, the governor or maybe like just went directly to Philadelphia themselves and asked for the Philadelphia militia because they knew that they wouldn't have any personal connections. They wouldn't know these people. They wouldn't even have any sort of like fondness for the area or of, of being home or anything. And so they thought that they would not have the sympathy for the strikers that the local militias and local police had. Yeah. And in fact, in that way, they probably, the people coming in, not to excuse it, but like you could see the attitude be like, all right, I just need to go get this job done so I can get the fuck home back to the other side of the state. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they didn't really have any vested interest, but they were more detached. Right, yeah. Uh, so by that evening, the Philadelphia militia showed up. Like, they actually put in a request for them. I, I believe it was that morning mm -hmm. after realizing that they had lost almost all of their guys. So they showed up. They did not come to fuck around. Their armaments were like every one of them came with like a rifle and 20 rounds, which maybe not the craziest thing. They brought two fucking Gatlin guns. Wow. Which like really forces you to ask yourself, what were they prepared to do to like just their own fucking citizenry who only like were asking for safe work and decent pay? Yeah, I mean, they're ready to mow down crowds if they've got Gatlin guns. To their credit, I found no reports of those actually being used. Ho ho hopefully it was more of like a deterrent. Um, but yeah, after the count, after the city sheriff literally read them the riot act and warned them that if the crowd did not disperse, they would send in the militia, that the militia would be armed and with live rounds and the crowd did not disperse and they did send in the militia. And it's, it's easy to see, like, if you've ever been in a crowd where violence happened, violence escalated, that it's. It can be kind of hard to tell what happened because it tends to go off so fast. And so I did see some reports here that, that kind of conflict who started the violence. Uh, there was reports of, like, as the, uh, as the Philadelphia militia closed in on the crowd, bayonets at the ready, that somebody in the crowd had a pistol and fired on them, and that's when uh, they started shooting. Which, honestly, like, that's a very fucking reasonable response. If, if somebody is marching towards me with a rifle and a bayonet affixed and I've got a gun, I'm going to fucking defend myself. But there are other uh, accounts that the militia shot first. And once, once the first person in the militia opened fire, th there, there was no uh, fire order. It just became chaos. It was just them firing down on, on a crowd of uh, basically unarmed people. By the end of, of that interaction there were 20 people dead and 29 people injured and by many accounts most of these people were there for support and were not even railroad workers themselves after after that altercation the crowd did disperse for a period of time and 
the, you know, the militia, you know, retreated for the time being. And after that, the, I kept seeing like that the crowds began looting and I, you know, we all have, we've all developed a bit of an aversion to the term looting. I think in this case, a lot of it was strategic because they raided the local armory and a gun manufacturer. But I think that a lot of people saw an opportunity where they've been underfed and out of work for years. And I'm I guarantee you there aren't a lot of like luxury goods in this, like in the steel manufacturing part of town. Right. So it it was probably just people trying to get, you know, like supplies, like basics of, of existence. Yeah. Like if I'm living on, you know, probably what's a couple bucks a day at that point or have been out of work for a couple months and I got to feed my kids and this situation comes up where I can go grab some fucking bread, you bet your ass I'm going to do it and call me a looter or whatever. A couple of bucks a day back then was good pay. Yeah. Well, so yeah, like, a, couple cents, no, no. a couple cents or whatever, you know, uh, a dollar a day was base pay. Right. And like, you know, and uh, this is like year four or five of uh, the greatest depression that they had ever seen. So people were doing without. Yeah. So like news began to spread about the violence from the Philadelphia militia to all the surrounding cities. And other people began to converge on Pittsburgh to join in with the striking workers. And that's, that's really when you see the progression from a strike to a riot to a full-blown insurrection. Uh, like, maybe, maybe St. Louis was, like, close to becoming the St. Louis commune, but I, I've heard Pittsburgh is the place where it was most likely an insurrection. Mm-hmm. Because, I, I mean, you basically have foreign, like, in terms of 1877, you had foreign troops coming and attacking you. Like, they're ready to throw down. And they do. <laughs> right. So the militia had set up shop in a train roundhouse, which is just a large building where they would work on the trains. And it, it's literally round. It's how they would, like, get the trains in and out of there so they could be, like, maintained and worked on. Um, I I couldn't find any sources as to how this happened. But, like, they, the strikers knew where where the militia was. And they somehow acquired an artillery piece or, or maybe uh, an artillery piece had been a ban- I, I don't fucking know. But the, the militia got scared when they saw that the strikers had art- like literal artillery. Yeah. Um, and so they actually started focus firing anytime somebody would approach. Like people kept trying to go to the, the gun to man it and the militia would open fire and they killed 15 people doing this. God damn. Imagine cops like getting paranoid and firing first uh you know i mean i'm not gonna make that direct comparison because no, they did have do, an artillery piece yeah they had an artillery piece <laughs> and people were trying to figure out how to use it that's fair that's fair <laughs> okay so i'm like i'm gonna do a little bit of western pennsylvania history real quick because it becomes relevant immediately uh, a lot of people don't realize that the first big oil boom in america was in western pennsylvania just north oil of Pittsburgh, city, is oil city yeah I've I there's a, an abandoned oil derrick in a park a little bit like 30 minutes from me that that's super fucking cool it's like was made in like the 1860s or stuff something but it was it was a big industry here so you have oil coke uh which is what was used for like uh smelting steel and like uh blast furnaces it's still used in blast furnaces uh coal all of that was were big exports in western pennsylvania so there were a lot of train cars that were loaded up with all of those incredibly flammable things and also whiskey, which is just awesome. It's, it's tragic that they would burn that. But yeah, the strikers began to set fire to those cars 
and pushed them downhill into the roundhouse to try to burn out the militia. Genius. Oh, yeah. Like, I'll get to the numbers at the end. I don't have them on hand, but hundreds of train cars. <laughs> like, these people fucked shit up. It was beautiful. Uh, and they were pretty successful. Like, the militia held out as long as they could in the roundhouse, but late into the night, probably like 3, 4, 5 in the morning, they had to flee because the entire building was on fire, and they basically just waited for enough of the crowd to disperse, go away, go to bed, do whatever, to uh, flee from the roundhouse and try and get out of the city. They were pursued by a mob of approximately 1,000 people. And uh, this is going to be one of the only times you'll ever hear me say anything positive about the police. So revel in it or mock me if you will. But what's about to happen fucking rules. So as they're fleeing through the city, they have people shooting at them from all over, like from storefronts, second story buildings. Uh, I heard one report of people on Polish Hill, which is a, a sort of an overlook in, in our part of the city, uh, that the, the uh, Pittsburgh militia had abandoned their uniform. Like the, the quote from back in the old timey days was, uh, we saw the Pittsburgh militia up on Polish Hill. They had abandoned their uniforms, but not their firearms, like something like that. <laughs> I don't have the direct quote, but yeah, they were shooting at them. So at some point they passed by a police station and numerous uniformed police officers opened fire on the militia. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty based. Fucking based. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there was a good cop after that until like Chris Dorner, but in the moment that ruled. Yeah, these ones get the Chris Dorner Award for sure. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they were a real piece of shit again like a week later, but in that yeah. moment, man. In that moment, yeah. Uh, uh, tragically, only three militiamen were killed uh, while they were fleeing. <laughs> and yes, that is worded correctly. <laughs> Dude, I can't imagine how pants-shittingly terrified that would be. To just like that, That's a hell Dude, of a circumstance. You just escaped a fucking building that's on fire from burning whiskey and coal. <laughs> Only to get shot at by like fucking probably drunk Pittsburghers in from their second door second story window, and then you run into like police, and maybe you think, oh, finally some help, and they fucking shoot at you too. <laughs> Go back to fucking Philly. <laughs> I I, uh, I read uh, or I saw an interview with one local labor historian, and he's just uh, anyone who's not aware, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia definitely have a bit of animosity for a handful of reasons, and we're in the same state, just on different sides by 300 miles. And he's like, if you ever wonder where the animosity started, you can always look to this time when they called in the Philadelphia militia to crush one of our strikes with fucking gunpowder. Like, pretty, pretty, pretty valid. Yeah. So they, they didn't end up getting out. I'm not really sure, like, how they escaped. But uh, the following morning, roughly two square miles of the city was on fire from all of the train cars and everything else. Like, you know. Think about a train car of oil or a train car of coal on fire and that shit just rolling around the city all over. Well, I mean, it's just like wild to me because this is the same shit that we see happening so often, like even in protests today, right? Like, and after the fact, they always get characterized as rioters and the people that are involved get condemned and shit like that. But like always they start off as like peaceful, right? And then people get fucking provoked and they get poked by cops coming in militia people coming in whatever you know and then somebody some fucking cop throws a you know a canister of tear gas into a crowd and then shit pops off but it always starts out it seems like with people like going out and expressing their you know 
right to protest that we're supposedly given in this country, right? And the right to like, you know, protest and withhold your labor and shit like that. And then this shit happens. And then people wonder why there's fucking train cars full of oil burning up two, uh, two square miles of the city. Like it's two square. Apparently it's like a three mile long stretch, basically from downtown through Lawrenceville. Yeah. Which if you're not local, I don't know, look at a map, but it's, it is even like, even nowadays it is like the commerce center of the city. Like the cool places to go eat and drink and hang out and go shopping and just miles of, of, I mean, at that time it was obviously different, but just miles of stuff on fire. Um, interestingly, there, there was like a government report on this years or I think a year or two later, and they found that the railroad had actually sent in people to burn train cars that were going to be taken out of service because if they take them out of service, then they just have a train car and there's no money to be made from it. But if it was destroyed, they intended to build the city for the destroyed train car. <laughs> little fraud. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's hard to even say, like, I- I'm sure the majority of it was, like, uh, workers and, and strikers just wrecking shit after having, like, their friends killed and shit going so, like, badly. But, yeah, at least a few were destroyed by the railroad themselves just to make an extra couple of bucks. And uh, at this time, this is Sunday, uh, the firefighters are still working, and they're actually being permitted to work, like, because, again, like, workers are not monsters. They are just people trying to stand up for themselves. And nothing could be more accurately reflected by the fact that any homes or businesses they were allowing the firefighters to handle responsibly uh, any railroad buildings, they would not let the firefighters near. <laughs> Those just got to burn. And, and, and this was one of the days where it seems like the violence actually had peaked and started to calm down. They started trying to organize amongst themselves. A, a citizens committee made efforts to find railroad executives to start negotiations, uh, which they were actually just wholly unable to find anyone from the railroad. I don't <laughs> honestly, I don't know. I would love to shit all over railroad execs for not being there when they're needed, but this just sounds like such chaos. I don't know how you would fucking find anybody. So it, it could go either way, realistically. Yeah. Um, and to, uh, they also tried to send representatives to like talk down the rioters, and those people weren't really hearing it either, which you know makes sense. If no one's going to address your concerns, like why would you stop doing what you're doing? No, but it's like, it's always interesting because again, and you have to kind of take like this Zen approach to history to actually find this kind of stuff. Because, you know, when you find some kind of like bourgeois historian that writes about this, like you never get that kind of account about the efforts of regular people to, again, form up into committees, form into groups and actually take charge of the situation on the ground. It's like working people are fucking very capable of doing that kind of stuff. And just because you're not taught about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, I mentioned our Johnstown episode earlier and like after the place was completely devastated by like literally millions of tons of water, like within hours after the fact, people were getting together and being like, okay, you know, how are we going to fix it? How can we get together and fix this shit? But you, you just don't, it's just a good point to make that like w- amid all this chaos, there's like working people like taking charge and trying to structure things and order things, you know? Absolutely. And, and, I, I, I kind of uh, foreshadowed this, but like right now is where we get into where that shines. So up until this point, all of the violence has been focused entirely within Pittsburgh proper. And I mean, P- Pittsburgh proper relative to like 1877 terms. And 
but it, what is now the north side used to be a separate entity called Allegheny City. It was just across the bridge, and they also had uh, railroads, uh, like, I, I don't know, like, what all equipment they had there, but there, there were hubs there. And this is actually, like, I, I couldn't find a very clear picture of what was going on, but it looks like Sunday is the first day that there is any violence in Allegheny City, and it seems to be very small in scale. And there's a very easy and specific reason. And I said that we were going to be coming back to uh, the trainmen's union and what little role it played in Pittsburgh. Well, okay, so there was a guy that worked in the train yards in Allegheny City named Robert Amon. Some people say that he was actually a boss. He was referred to as Boss Amon. Now, I don't know if that was a nickname, and he was, I, I, I'm guessing he was a low level boss who probably like came up through the ranks working shoulder to shoulder with people. I actually had an uncle that was like that. He was union his whole life, but he got hurt and he was offered a management position and he took it and just always sided with workers. Oh yeah. You hate to see it happen, but I res you respect it nonetheless. Uh, Boss Eamon was apparently incredibly well respected amongst the people that worked for him. And he was a member of the trainmen's union as best as I can tell. And basically if he said, no, we're going to stay calm. Everybody said, okay. Just give us the word if that changes um, up to and including the point where uh, d days after this, like uh, several days later, uh, all of this happening, the Pennsylvania governor had been out of town, but he comes back to handle all of the violence. And so a few days later, when his train passes through Pittsburgh, he was allowed to pass through safely because boss Amon told all of his workers to allow him through. So like, I don't know if I, I don't know <laughs> if I agree with his decision. But you got to respect somebody who has that level of respect from the people that they work with. Absolutely. And so I don't really know what happened that violence actually did erupt this day. Like, I know some train cars were burned, but by and large, it was nothing compared. And, and there's two things that you can look at. One, the fact that they didn't actually send any militia to deal with those people. And two, like Boss Amon was telling people, no, just stay here and stay calm. Because they had people from outside cities coming in uh, to fight or support people or whatever else. Uh, e even like uh, by Monday, some of the uh, more powerful community members had managed to raise a pretty significant militia. And that's, that's when you really see the violence starting to take a downturn. But they had, um, oh yeah, that was, that was the, a thousand people being led by Civil War General James Negley. Another one of those names you see all over fucking Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, this is this is just the worst for making me realize that every name on a building or street here is a fucking class traitor, fucking war criminal. Yeah, but uh, around the same time that they rallied up like a thousand militia members, a group of a thousand miners from upriver made their way into the city because they had heard rumors that uh, workers in Pittsburgh were being abused by the troops. <laughs> Uh, and any libertarians listening, don't get too excited. It was, it was a thousand coal miners, not like underage people. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, you threw in your libertarian jab earlier. Yeah, I, I didn't even have to. I actually already had mine written too. We're just like that. <laughs> just petty. <laughs> I'm here for it. Yep. But uh, yeah. So the the miners showed up, and it took the mayor and General Negley reassuring them, like thoroughly that the troops actually would be dispersed and not used against the workers before the miners agreed to return home. 
so they were basically like well yeah we're we're here until the troops are gone and all right, all right fine fuck <laughs> don't um, fuck with the pa coal miners <laughs> dude yeah seriously. don't fuck with coal miners yeah in general yeah. you don't, you don't hear one story where like, the coal miner wasn't just the hardest motherfucker in the room so yeah they 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 agreed to return and and they left and it kind of looks like the next few days were probably like more of the same like not the most intense violence but all quite over um but on saturday the 28th that's you know five days later the governor sent in more uh militiamen two companies of federal troops i'm sorry that's more militiamen and two companies of federal troops with 14 fucking artillery pieces with them shit (laughs) so if if we thought that the two gatlin guns might have been overkill uh, this time they really came correct. Like they were ready to end the city of Pittsburgh, and uh, without a lot more fighting, they had the trains running again. Two days later, a- after 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 a small army showed up and everything had already burned to the ground, that everybody agreed to get the trains running, and it was uh, two days before they actually got trains going again. And it took another week after that before all of the rails were able to be repaired enough that they could even return to normal operation. Yeah, I mean, that was wild. Like, just all that happened in Pittsburgh. Like I said, I knew just from, like, because I read more of, like, the the general stuff in the research for this part, because I knew you were going to dive more into the detail. But, like, every piece you find is, like, Pittsburgh is where shit really popped off (laughs) in terms of, like, the actual violence and, you know, the militant action, militant in, like, the uh, (laughs) military sense a little bit, you know? Uh, yeah literally yeah yeah so i don't know it's pretty interesting and i i don't know i think this is something that we can even talk about today just because in my experience organizing in pittsburgh it does seem to have kind of like a it's got an anarchist streak through it doesn't it you know and this when we hear about this kind of activity in a lot of ways it reminds me of and I think this is really indicative of a lot of like the labor activity, especially in this time period in the U.S. In the U.S., I mean, you look at Haymarket. I mean, it is it does have an anarchist streak through it, doesn't it? Well, uh, really interestingly, and I found nothing to support this in ter- like terms of like uh, other people don't necessarily share his attitude. But uh, yeah, there, there's a local historian who basically does labor history, and he consistently refers to this not even just in Pittsburgh, but this era of the United States as the first red scare. Yep. Because like, and, and it makes sense because this is when you have a lot of uh, socialists and anarchists coming from uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I think a, a lot of people underestimate just how many people were bringing radical politics with them overseas. Uh, and then you have like this massive just wave of strikes and battles effectively. Uh, you have Haymarket just a few years later, which I, I think that's an important. Oh, um, I, I really I meant to mention like this. This is also off the heels of one, the second largest hanging in U.S. history when they executed 10 of the Molly Maguires for supposedly organizing a strike, which most people agree the Molly Maguires don't even exist. They just needed bodies to hang to prove a point. So, so like it's a red scare just because you're at a point where like the violence between the like between the bourgeois and the proletariat is is ready to boil over and they're afraid yep and that's why i like that mark's quote that i found so much is just that like this could be the signal point because it was like it was the biggest uprising 
to date of labor versus capital. It could be the bubblings he saw as, you know, kind of the origin point of what could be a serious workers movement. And I think we did see that in a lot of ways. I mean, because you're talking about later, um, 20 years later would be the, uh, the Pullman strikes, right? And Eugene Debs was involved with that, right? And Debs, I mean, you have to point to Debs as being the leader of the first like serious organized workers workers party right i mean the socialist party and yeah. i think you can draw a direct line from all this through haymarket to that point i don't even remember what it was but i i saw a, a straight line drawn from this to big bill yeah big bill haywood yeah like all of those classical figures that you know like they were kind of forged in these fires man yeah no absolutely so I think, you know, just to that point, it's probably good to just kind of just paint the picture of how this kind of all turned out, right? And I think Pittsburgh, how it ended in Pittsburgh is kind of indicative of how it ended throughout the country, you know, with slight differences. But ultimately, I think there's some things that we can draw from it. So, you know, as with Pittsburgh, the movement and strikes really couldn't be sustained um, in the various points in the country where they were taking place. And like I said, at varying points, they all kind of came to an end. But the consensus is that like having started in July, like mid to late July, you know, with Martinsburg, by early to mid-September, essentially the strikes were over and things were going back to kind of business as usual. You know, and the workers had functionally been defeated by the bourgeois state, the largesse of the capitalists, and, you know, relatedly, because they were able to pay them by dirty fucking class traders in a lot of cases. You know, I don't think we saw a lot of that, you know, solidarity that we saw in Pittsburgh everywhere. Um, and sadly, most of the wage cuts were not even overturned despite all of this activity. And like where some gains were made or at least like anti-labor actions reversed somewhat, the capitalists actually balanced this out by investing even more heavily in their repressive militia apparatuses, such as the coal and iron police which sounds just fucking fantastic, right? And so obviously that's just in preparation for the next inevitable uprising as a result of their all-consuming search for profit, right? Am I getting confused or was it, did I read somewhere that this was one of the like uh, early, like first times you start seeing Pinkertons? I mean, I could definitely, I don't know, but you could definitely see that coming out of this. I mean, the coal and iron police sounds like the, <laughs> sounds Pinkerton adjacent to me. I won't, I won't swear by that. I think, because I don't know, the origins of, of Pinkertons, I don't want to know. I just want them dead. But I, I believe that I saw that this was like somewhere they like got involved here. And this was one of the first times. I mean, Maybe I'm wrong. Even, even if it's not like a direct line that says, oh, like the coal and iron police, like the Pinkertons came out of that explicitly, like the the onus for them, kind of the driving force for the formation of such a body to essentially quelch labor is the same, right? Like even if like they don't come from exact the exact same place, like the desire of the capitalists to repress labor is still what gives rise to those bodies, even if they form in different places, you know? Yeah. And in all, you know, we mentioned some of the bloodshed in Pittsburgh, but 100 mostly working people were killed as a result of all the violence and another thousand had been imprisoned. I mean, and they really went after labor unions. I mean, the, the uh, working men's party headquarters in St. Louis was raided, you know, people were hauled away. So they, they went after the organizers oh, i actually have like uh some stats from this that i forgot to put in the notes let me pull them up because it's pretty interesting yeah so at the end of the day in in pittsburgh alone 53 strikers were killed 15 military uh 39 buildings were burned 104 locomotives were burned between 46 and 66 passenger cars were burned 
1,200 to 1,383 freight cars were burned and two square miles of the city were burned. Total damage was estimated to be close to $10 million, not adjusted for inflation. Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Fucked around and found out. (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. This was the time of finding out. (laughs) I hate seeing strikers not getting what they ask for, but I like seeing, like, those that they're striking against getting their fucking ass handed to them. Yeah, but it's just to, to that point that you made earlier about like how these people are still like basically making insurance claims against the fucking city. Yeah. Like taxpayers were still fucking paying for this, you know what I mean? Because of capital's dominance of the government. Yeah, well, I mean, like it's, it's the conversation. Not to be a downer I, about it, but fuck. Uh, we're, as Marxists, that's our job. Yeah. We can't enjoy anything anymore, can we? It's really hard. <laughs> but, you know, to that point, it does show to try to look at it in a positive way shows that the combined efforts of working people and class solidarity, they could bring to halt action on essentially half of the nation's vital commercial arteries. Right. So like, I think of that, I think there was like about 70,000 miles of track and 35,000 was essentially stopped. There was no fucking rail activity on half of that track. So, I mean, it's pretty badass. I mean, and it was a limited time, but it shows that it shows the power of working people. And I think Zen kind of concludes this well. So he says, quote, in 1877, the same year blacks learned they did not have enough strength to make real the promise of equality in the Civil War, working people learned they were not united enough, not powerful enough to defeat the combination of private capital and government power. But there was more to come. So ends on kind of a hopeful note, that section from Zen. You know, it just occurred to me, and like this was this was not prepped at all. What we are seeing in this story is it is largely, if not exclusively, the problem of capital because it's hurting their profits. Uh, but people were more regionally self-sufficient because like they weren't as dependent on a transportation network at the time. So like to bring this to like obvi- the obvious reason why we're covering a story about a railroad strike, we have way more power now than they did. Yeah. Because, like, now, you know, shipping is, like, so much more necessary. There's no real regional, like, self-sufficiency like that. No. So, if that's, like, that, I, I get angry every fucking time I start talking about the rail strike. No, because you're right. Because it's, like, it's not, I mean, at this level, we're talking about, like, the beginnings of national interconnectivity, right? And, like, interconnectivity on a global financial basis, right? I mean, there was obviously still shipping. I mean, we talked about shipping cotton over to textile mills in England, but I mean, to your point, it it was not, I mean, I can't even imagine that they would, that people like Marx could even, I mean, maybe Marx could, but I can't imagine a lot of people could comprehend the scale at which things would be connected today, you know? And as a result, the power that workers have over the means of actually connecting these things and transporting goods. But, you know, I think, you know, and to get to why I think this is important to understand and like why it's still a relevant story, because, you know, I think we look at what's going on today and it's like we all want a wildcat strike, of course, to demonstrate workers powers. Right. But like we have to understand that, like what the weaknesses are. Right. And I still think that we face some of these same weaknesses today that they faced. Right. And probably even more so in a lot of ways. Right. So like while we do have 
more connected unions at a national level. I mean, you can't deny that some of the leadership is tied into the bureaucracy of the Democratic Party, right, which kind of neuters the militancy. I don't have the means to address that on a personal level, but it's something that I think we as communists all need to fucking take seriously, right? And like, why if you have the ability to get into a trade union to go in and kind of radicalize people that you work with every day, right? Overcome maybe some uh, reactionary tendencies you might come across. Don't fucking shut people out, but like try to educate and work with people. Furthermore, you know, just uh, kind of linking up with systems of mutual aid and support at the local level, right? That would supplement support systems kind of built into unions, right? Like it's all good to like tweet about like wanting a wildcat strike, but like, are you willing to throw some bucks to actually support the workers that are, you know, getting basically getting their pay withheld or not getting paid because they're on strike or whatever it may be? Like, are you going to be able to help sustain that kind of movement? Are you going to go out to the picket line to stand next to people in solidarity? I mean, that's the kind of shit that requires. And it's going to, People are going to want to know that that's there, I think, before they make the decision to go out and do this kind of thing. And then finally, like, yeah, just linking this all up to a movement with an end goal in the sense that we would want to see it. And that that that's in part tied into, well, it's very much tied into my point about, like, who's leading the unions, right? Like, what is the kind of end goal of a railroad strike? In, in today's day and age like it's obviously great we want the workers to get their we want the workers to get better conditions we want them to get their sick days and things like that but from the perspective of communists it's like we need these things linked together i don't know how familiar you are with like the history of unions in the u.s but it has been a pretty active project to de-radicalize them all because 100%. W- yeah when you go back to the 20s and 30s 40s you know we we did an cars and comrades did an episode theories with turn leftist where we talk about walter ruther who uh was probably like a democratic socialist he he considered himself a socialist to some extent but was still had like all of the anti-communist rhetoric that you see from socialists and his his goal like his intention was to oust the communist leader of the united auto workers yeah and like that guy might have had his own problems too but like you know they replaced a communist with you know an anti-communist that was pro worker, but was willing to be friendly with capital, mm-hmm. and like that's that's been an active project across the board because, like, yeah, like if capital's going to have to deal with a union, they don't want to deal with the radical ones. Yep. They don't want to deal with any of them, but like definitely not the ones that w- would would see them hanged. Yeah, because the radical ones, the radical elements, are the ones that actually end up pushing the envelope, right, and getting the real fun, like not fundamental, because we're not changing capitalism, but like real fucking change that makes people lives different for the better. Dude, my fucking union. When I, I say my, I'm actually like not in. There has been a hiccup, but um, I should be in shortly. Not when we got uh our contract negotiation back last year. Well, not only was no one happy with what we got, we found out that the reason that no one was happy with what we got is that they didn't even ask for any of the shit that we wanted. Yeah. Like we wanted a cap at 10 hour workdays and they cap. They didn't even ask for a cap because we would we routinely work 14 and 15, 16 hour days. Right. Um, that's, that's why like I this have, was a fundamental demand from us. Right. <laughs> like for a lot of people, they're like, yummy, yummy overtime. But like. Say, well, what if you could make, what if I told you there was a way to make just as much money, but work less? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
so yeah, like the, the, the rank and file uh, don't see the need for things to be radicalized because they have learned to like just revel in their own exploitation. And it, it's really hard to organize those people. Like, and, and you know, these people that are already in a union, but like, I, I mean, like, I guess push further left. And it's, I don't, I don't know. Also, it's hard to think because my cat is just crawling all over me. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good point. And just that's why I wanted to make the point that, you know, trade unions are fucking fantastic. And even a, you know, reactionary union is better than a union. I wish I was part of one. My current work situation doesn't really lend itself to me actually joining one. But I'm, I'm always in support of fucking trade unions. But they're not. In the way that they're currently constructed, it's not, it's not the Soviets of 1917, right? Like they're not embedded with a radical party. The leadership is embedded with a party which is meant to essentially neuter radical movements. That is literally their function, and you know, continue to push the agenda of capitalism under the banner of quote unquote wokeness in a lot of cases. So, and, and just tied to that point, I mean, and I want, I think this story is important because we saw. Time and time again, the state coming down on the side of fucking capital, right? Calling in the militia. And while what we just saw was not as directly violent with Biden, you know, basically enacting a law to make this strike illegal with both houses of fucking Congress on his side, right? Both of which are currently held by Democrats. But it's just another, it's just, and we said this on the live show, but again, you're not going to get a much more explicit display, barring what we talked about today, of the state actually being on the side of capital and not labor, and it is not neutral in this type of situation. I just I'll double down on the point that I made on the live show when we discussed this, and like say that the the heart wrenching part of this for me was you, when you see the concrete evidence that they're trying to disarm you, like one of the biggest tools in our arsenal is the strike. And if we can have a union, but not the power to strike as we see fit, then what the fuck good is our union? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the point, I mean, this is all about labor and labor power, right? And if you're withholding your labor power is illegal, then you really have no, you, you have no leverage. Yeah, I think that there would be a lot to be said about just reframing a union, not, not as just a means to make better money. Because I see that argument put out there a lot, like join a union just because it pays better than the non-union job and, and, and reframe it as like solidarity, as like worker power, as, as workplace democracy. Yep. People fucking love talking democracy so much. Well, where was all the fucking democracy when the railroad workers voted to, voted to strike? Like liberals' favorite fucking word in the world, they voted to strike and the government voted no. Well, liberals need to get it through their head that fucking political power is economic power, and these things don't exist in silos. They are not separate. Also, firepower is political power. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Mal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. So do you guys got anything else? Like, I know, Stevie, you looked into a little bit of, like, what's going on because we try to bring a little bit of a perspective from across the pond, too. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, just in terms of the bill that they did, I mean, did you guys look at that at all? I mean, uh, it, a bit, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it just, the wording of it's interesting, you know, they they claim it, you know, threatened essential transportation services, 
Yeah, it was in the, yeah, exactly. It was in the national interest, including national health and defense. Again, you know, completely ignoring the health of the railway workers that they weren't allowed to strike and a bunch of other shit. But then it ties, you know, it quotes the Railway Labor Act of 1926, which from what I've read, you know, was largely influenced by what we've just talked about, the strikes of 1877. But that, that law, again, it, that only permits strikes for major disputes. It doesn't allow them for minor. And it considers major disputes um, as things that concern the making or modification of the, the collective bargaining agreement between the parties and minor disputes involve the interpretation or application of collective bargaining agreements. So again, you know, it limits the ability to strike. It says they can strike over major disputes only after they've exhausted negotiation and mediation procedures and a bunch of other this other shit like federal courts can enforce the end of a strike if it's deemed to be over a minor dispute so of course any court that you know is going to favor in the on the side of capital there um they can carriers can so, so they need coal workers yeah so that they have they can be like, no this is a minor dispute yeah <laughs> <laughs> Carriers can lawfully replace strikers. It says they have to give them their jobs back, but it could, I, I, I read something that they could give them like a lesser job. So all this shit. So basically, you know, it's all the stuff we've talked about. But then the, the, the other thing that I ran into, and I don't know how much, have you guys read anything about this Glacier Northwest Inc. versus International Brotherhood of Teamsters from, no. I think it's Washington State. So that's a case that the Washington Supreme Court threw out but the U.S. Supreme Court are going to hear arguments, I think, in January, and they're expected to rule in favor. And what that'll do is it'll allow businesses to sue unions and strikers in court for economic for economic losses or consequences of strikes, for Jesus example. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So remember that thing I just said about firepower? I did mean guns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so, I mean, you know that 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 the current court is going to rule in favor of. Oh, 100%. So, so that, you know, I mean, what's that going to do to, to strike? Well, we know what it's going to do, but it just, you know, it further just limits anything that we have the power to do. I mean, people don't realize, I mean, I think they're starting to realize, but just how insidious and coordinated this project of the right has been in terms of capturing the Supreme Court to push yeah. forward both a reactionary social and economic agenda. But Additionally, like, you know, you can go back and look at like the liberal hero RBG, like when it comes to economics, she was a fucking reactionary as well. Yeah. I mean, case after case, she continually sided on the side of big businesses, right? So you can't even like, you couldn't even point to this case to me and be like, oh, well, you know, fucking if only we had gotten Hillary elected, right? Or whatever, because it, it, liberals are on the side of capital as well. You know, and the Supreme Court is a fucking reactionary, anti-democratic institution. It's the most anti-democratic institution in a nation of profoundly undemocratic systems of governance, you know. And the right is just saying, fuck this. We know we're not popular. We're going to hammer our agenda in and we're going to use this mechanism to do it. And that's yeah. where we're at right now. Yep. I don't know. Do you want me to talk a little all about England or we, you think we're done? I don't know. Maybe we could do a supplemental episode. I'm getting kind of thirsty. Yeah. What do you guys think? Fine. Whatever you want, man. I'm I'm good doing it later as well. I, I mean, mean I, it's short, but then let's do it. All right. So I'll just Fuck do a quick. Thirst. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll only take five minutes, I think. Oh, yeah. So I, I think one of the things that's important to note with when I talk about the rail strike in England, and we've kind of mentioned this with the, the, the sympathy of people, right, is unlike in the U.S., you know, commuter rail is a major part of how people move in England. Not as many people drive. A lot of people take trains. So, um, you know, I think the government thought that, you know, making, you know, these strikes would make people's lives, life inconvenient and therefore they wouldn't support the strikers, but it's kind of, it hasn't worked like that. And I think um, the guy who's the, the uh, general secretary of the RMT, which is the Union of Rail, Maritime and Transportation Workers, has been you know, really good about how he's done this. And his name's Mick Lynch, and I'll kind of talk about that. But I think that that's an important part in terms of the visibility of the strike, because I think here, if you're not us, how many people really knew, you know, in depth about the railway strike in this country? I don't, I mean, obviously, if you look it up, you see a lot of stuff, but I, I think it could have passed a lot of people by without them really noticing. Whereas in England, it's, it's in your face like every day. Well, and the headlines you get over here are like, oh, Biden, because like, you know, if you look at like the major outlets, right, it's like, oh, crisis averted, strike averted, and it has nothing, it's not framed as like, oh, like, Biden's a fucking scab and he's punishing workers and, you know, coming down on the side of capital. It's not framed that way at all, you know? Yeah. I feel like our headlines are more like, should Biden get a puppy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a reward for saving, for saving the Christmas season. <laughs> Yeah, that was every headline I saw was like, oh, they have to, we can't do this during the holidays. It's fuck off. Oh, yeah. The RMT, they initiated labor action on June 21st of this year. Um, and this was because, so if you go through the history of rail in England, right, it was privatized in the 90s. So before that, it was British rail. And now it's kind of like you were talking about a lot of regional rail services that join into the, the link across the country. But um, it's all kind of, overseen by network rail so they're like the bosses so they wanted to cut critical safety jobs as part of a modernization project they wanted to increase working hours and they were going to increase redundancies they were going to shut all ticket offices down and require customers to purchase tickets online they were claiming that the redundancies were necessary due to changing commuter patterns following covid like working from home shit like that but the Guardian obtained some documents showing the network rail had plans to hire new employees on inferior terms and conditions, lower wages, a requirement to work Sundays, no pension, which in this country, probably you'd say no pension and it's not a big deal. But in England, everybody has a pension. Yeah. Um, and the above would, it was only if the union accepted a 3% pay rise. So it could have been even worse. Um, and the union was going for 7% plus, you know, and I'll get into that in a second. They later revised, Network Rail revised their offer to 5%, but only if workers and union and the union accepted the modernization terms or reforms. And that would mean, again, redundancies, layoffs, uh, reduction of safety jobs, longer hours and working Sundays. So the government in a large part decided to stay out of it. Um, and they said that they needed to, the union and Network Rail had to negotiate this themselves. But then more recently, Grant Shapps, who is the Secretary of State for Transport, they claimed that Network Rail revised their offer to 8% and blamed the union and Mick Lynch for not putting his offer to his members. But Lynch pointed out correctly that this 8% would only cover about half of the union members. It didn't, it, so it was like a select group of workers that would actually get this. So he, you know, wanted he wanted the 8% for, his, for all of his workers, obviously. 
And it was also linked to these, I mentioned earlier, these driver-only operated trains. So it's just one person on the train. Um, and that's seen as like a stopgap measure to completely automatic trains, so more redundancies. So other than that Shap's comment, the government, as I said, has taken a hands-off approach, except to say that modernization needs to occur. And I think I mentioned this earlier. They'd given money to Network Rail because of the losses during COVID, but it was tied to they had to modernize. So again, you know, they're just siding with Network Rail. Um, and obviously this move was criticized by the RMT. And then they, you know, they feel that the government should come more, you know, help them a little more. And then really recently, like in the last week, Sunak, who's our new prime minister, has said that there'll be no... There'll the, the be fifth no, one in a week yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, talk about a failing country. <laughs> Yeah. But he, he says there'll be no change on wage disputes, so he's encouraging Network Rail to take a hard line. So again, RMT is looking for at least a 7% wage, wage raise for all workers and a halt to redundancies. And they're also demanding this at a time, you know, there's a cost of living crisis in Britain, inflation is 9.1%, and Mick Lynch has held ground for his workers. And, and I think the, the cl the, he's been very clever in like garnering public support. So there's these rolling strike days, and he'll... Not, not to cut you off, uh, inflation is 9.1%. It was in England, yeah. That sounds low to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more now. I think this was, this was in the height of negotiations, so that was probably, like, August. Oh, so, so before winter, when everyone's heating costs suddenly became more than their yeah, cost exactly. of anything else. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, Putin. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, so... So he, they have these rolling strike days. It's not like they're on strike every day. So he'll come out and he'll say, okay, we're going to be on strike the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 27th, 28th, 29th. So make other arrangements. And you can in England. You can get buses. You can you know, do a lot of different things. And so he does that to forewarn travelers. And the other thing he did, which, again, I don't think any of us like the Queen, but he stopped all labor action during the morning period for the queen to allow people to travel to, you know, see her in state or whatever the fuck they wanted to do. And, you know, while we probably wouldn't agree with that, that uh, the, the public, there was a lot of support from the public because he did that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said for doing something to garner public favor. Yeah. And then the other side of this is network rail, despite. So when they announce these strike days, there's like still a very limited service of trains. So, just as an example, say you want to get a train from Manchester to Stoke. On a typical day, there's probably 25 trains that go. On a strike day, there might only be two. But Network Rail is still selling tickets as if there's every train running and not telling travelers which train, you know, which train might go and which might not. And again, you can go online and find this, but there's, a, there's an older population in England that, you know, aren't as technical savvy as, as some of the younger people. So a lot of people are going to the train stations and finding out there's no trains that day and not being able to get a refund. And I think Network Rail and the government thought they'd blame the RMT, but really they're, they're, there's a lot more blame at network, on Network Rail. So just I guess the moral of all this is I think this Lynch has really done a good job in getting public support for his movement and putting pressure on rail and the government, Network Rail and the government to try and come to a better solution for them than than obviously we saw in this country yeah i mean that's a good point just because like i haven't seen a lot of i mean i haven't seen any like pro-union pro-railroad railroad union advertising you know what i mean coming out to kind of buoy public support in that way and you know the reality is is that you know i think i mean i'm, I'm guilty of this as well like i didn't get you know clued into this until very recently but 
this has been brewing for years now, yeah. you know, because like the way they're the, the way the contracts work is like this come up, but like they can't. And this is from a prior law. I don't believe that they can, you know, strike to get a new. Well, I'm sorry, I'm misspeaking here, but it basically if the contract kind of continues to roll over from the previous period, they need to continue working under those conditions, right? Like while they hammer this kind of all out, as far as I understand it. If the contract can expire, but you're still have to adhere to those conditions until a new one is that's, worked out. That's, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. So I don't know if that's true or not. I just, but that's not too uncommon for a lot of unions. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was, there were a couple of union guys on Chapo did an, an episode with them. And I think that's basically what they said. That's kind of how I understood it. But like, the point is that like the contract that had existed that they're working to get better conditions for, we're working to get better conditions uh, for. It's been going on for a while. So it's just, I think the point that I'm trying to make is that there's a problem with public consciousness and public awareness about these issues that are going on that would kind of lead to some of this solidarity and some of these support networks being kind of built up before the shit kind of hits the fan and suddenly everybody's aware of a bill in front of Congress, right? And there's not much time to do anything to support these workers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess <laughs> guess we'll see how it plays out in England, but at least there's some fucking sympathy towards labor remaining, it seems like, even if at the barest levels, despite like Thatcher 7 or 8 or 9 or whatever that we're on right now over there. Yeah, and, and the privatization of rail in England, you know, the rail wasn't privatized under Thatcher, but a lot of things tied to rail was like some maritime stuff was they have they used to have these things called British transport hotels, which were for, I think, workers and, and people that traveled a lot. Those were all privatized. And then it was like an EU directive that wanted to make a more competitive market that that led to uh, Major, uh, John Major privatizing rail after he took over for Thatcher. Yeah, I mean, Thatcher didn't have to do everything herself because she just had to, like, implement the neoliberal infrastructure. And then once the ball's rolling, everyone just gets crushed by that ball that's rolling. Yep. I mean, same thing Reagan did. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the same. It's the same fucking project. Yeah. It's the the neoliberal project, right? Yeah. Here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Like, we're on Reagan, like, seven. Yeah. (laughs) We're on senile Reagan now, so... (laughs) Well, we started. That, that. Yeah, yeah. That, we've come full circle. Yeah. Has, <laughs> that's that's 2.0 as well. Nothing has fundamentally changed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I think if you look back, you'll find that that's actually like uh, the the rule and not the exception. One hundred percent. Yeah. Except it's gotten worse. So, well, you got well, anything else, guys? No, it was great. No, Did we crushed that like it was a railroad strike. <laughs> that's fucking right. Call us Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, Brandon, plug yourself, plug cars and comrades. Um, Just for everybody listening, if you haven't already go check them out. It's a great show. Another lefty outlet and a source of information in this fucking cruel dark world that we live in. But uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. So uh, check them out. But man, definitely want to, you know, thank you for hopping on with us, but plug your stuff. You just did. Do it again. <laughs> All right, check, check out Cars and Comrades. It's a show about cars. <laughs> and I'm on it, which should be an, enough reason alone for you to listen to it, because I'm great. Uh, you can check out Cars and Comrades on uh, Instagram. I think we have some other socials. Just, just any social media you like, type in Cars and Comrades and see what comes up. 
it's probably us. Actually, oh, one yeah. time it wasn't us. Huh. But those those folks seem cool. I don't know. <laughs> An imposter. <laughs> no. Um. Like I said, buddy. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you in a little bit for uh, some beers. Gonna go raise hell in Pittsburgh. So. Oh yeah. Let's uh, burn two square miles of the city down. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if something crazy happens, it wasn't us. Yeah. I didn't say that. I've <laughs> been working on the railroad All the live long day I've been working on the railroad Just to pass the time away Can't you hear the whistle blowing Rise up so early in the morn Can't you hear the captain shouting Dinah blow your horn Dinah won't you blow Dinah won't you blow Dinah won't you blow your horn Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow? Dinah, won't you blow your horn?